Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, May 7th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. Joining me into this podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Paul. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writers Huachan Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Chris? Chris. Chris Sorry. I was on mute. Sorry. Hello, I'm here. <laughs> Chris, is this is this an extension of your computer problems? Yes, it is. I'm sorry. I'm, what, what, I'm not. What has been going on with your computer? All right. So uh, I have a MacBook Pro, and um, I don't know if anyone else is aware of this, but certain models of the MacBook Pro, they have a, a faulty keyboard that tends to stick, and Apple has acknowledged this. Uh, not only have they acknowledged this, but they, they offer to replace the keyboard for free if you have a certain model, which I do. So uh, I'd been putting up with it for a while, but I, I was sort of like, you know, enough is enough because obviously I use my computer every day for work. So I made an appointment at my, my local Apple store uh, on Saturday, last Saturday, and I went in there. And I told him the story and the guy was very helpful. The, the genius bar guy was very helpful. He was like, oh, you know, no problem. We can replace this for you in 24 hours, you know, free of charge. I was like, great. 
So he says, all right, but first I have to run this diagnostic test. And I'm like, fine, not a problem, because as far as I knew, the computer, other than the the, uh, the keyboard, was fine. There was no problem with the computer. So he runs his diagnostic test and he goes, hmm, this thing is saying there's a problem with your I don't know what he called it. Some sort of board, something with board in the title. So I said, oh, that's odd because the computer is working fine. And he said, yeah, but this problem could eventually become a serious problem. Uh, we have to fix this too. And I said, can we just ignore this and just fix the the, the keyboard? Cause that's all I care about. And he said, no, our policy is, you know, we have to fix everything, which sounds like bullshit to me, but whatever, whatever you say, Apple. So, uh, he was like, you know, we can fix this, but it's going to take, you know, five business days. And I really didn't want to do this because again, I use my computer for work, but I have this old crappy laptop and I figured, all right, I'll use my old crappy laptop while they're fixing this. Because again, he said the warranty is going to cover this. Everything is free, 100% free. And you can't beat free, folks. So I said, fine. Uh, so this was Saturday. Yesterday, Apparently you can beat free. Yes. So yesterday I get an email from, from Apple that says, your repair is on hold. And I'm like, uh-oh, what is this about? Uh, I, so I log in and it says, while we were fixing your computer – we noticed water damage. Now, I don't want to accuse Apple of lying because I don't think they're lying, but I know for a fact I have never spilled anything on this computer. I've never gotten this laptop wet. There's no reason it should have any water damage. And again, it was working perfectly fine except for the keyboard. It wasn't like it wasn't turning on. It wasn't like it was running slow. Everything was fine. So I call at the Apple store. I say, what is going on here? Why is my thing on hold? I need this computer back. And they say, well, because of the water damage, that voids everything. And now, instead of being free, you have to pay $650. So this has jumped from zero to nearly 700 bucks in the span of 48 hours. See, and See, there's these, um, there's these indicators that are inside your computer that, like, they're like these little circles that change color if there's, you know, quote-unquote water damage. But I think... They can be set off even by, like, a lot of humidity. Right. And I wouldn't even be surprised if it was something like that. Again, I don't think Apple is lying. I just think they have this hard line here and they refuse to budge. So I was like, look, I know I didn't cause any water damage. Please just fix my computer. And they said, again, they gave me that same party line of we can't fix one thing. We have to fix everything. And I was, I practically was begging them. I was like, please just fix the keyboard. That's all I want. And this guy was clearly like reading off like a cute card where he just kept saying the same thing robotically over and over again. And it was driving me nuts. And so he was like, you know, your only options are you can either pay $650 or just cancel everything and we'll send the computer back to you. And obviously I don't want to pay $650. So I said, you know, screw it. Send me my computer back. Uh, and that was sort of the end of it, but I was so angry. I was like, you know what? I'm calling like the main Apple line. I'm going to try and get another answer. So I call up. You asked for Tim Cook? Yeah, I, he was not in. So they, they transferred <laughs> me to someone else. And this person was like, oh, uh, I need to I need to kick you up to a, a senior person. I was like, fine. So they kicked me up to a senior person. The senior person listens to my whole story, my whole song and dance. And then she says, oh, I need to kick you up to a senior person. I was like, I thought 
that's what you were. And she was like, yeah, but I need someone above me. And this went on for like 40 minutes. I finally get to someone else. She listens to my whole story. She says, man, this is, you know, I, I understand why you're upset. Uh, I don't know what I can do for you. Let me talk to my manager. And at this point uh... I was grinding my teeth down to powder, but I was hoping for some sort of answer. So she said, I'm going to put you on hold. I'll get back to you. She puts me on hold for literally a full hour because, you know, the phone has the the timer at the top. So, it, you know, it showed me how long I was on the call after an hour, nothing happened at which point it was like 10 30 at night. And I said, I'm done. And I hung up. So that's where I am right now, boiling with rage, waiting for my unfixed computer to come back. End of story. That is awful, Chris. <laughs> Yeah, that is. Uh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And you know, I, I know this is like a very first world problem. I know there are people with much more serious problems than my expensive computer won't work. But again, <laughs> this is this is you know my livelihood. This is how I I do my job. And yeah. now I I not only am I not only is the computer not fixed, I, the whole endeavor was useless. I might well have just kept it here and dealt with the the shitty keyboard rather than be down a good computer for a few days because now i'm stuck using this junker until the other comes back but now i'm also paranoid the crappy you know the the one i took in is going to not turn on now because it has this miraculous water damage that it didn't have before so i'm uh i'm on edge right now just waiting to figure out what's going to happen i wouldn't worry about that i think it's going to come back fine it's just they should fix the keyboard like i don't i i have a clicky key on mine because i i have one of the laptops affected but I have not wanted to give up my computer for a few days. You know what I mean? Like, yes, and take it from me. Just don't. Just, just deal with the. I, I, what I think I'm going to do is when this comes back, provided it turns out, I'm just going to go out and buy an external, like wireless keyboard because that's obviously a simpler task than having to go through Apple support, who are um, terrible. I will say, in the past, I've dealt with Apple support and they've been very helpful. This is like the first time. Yeah. They were just terrible, but this entire experience has like soured me on their their product. So thanks a lot, Apple. So Tim Cook, if you're listening to Slash Film Daily, uh, you know Chris is unhappy. Yeah, you owe me. Call me up, Tim Cook. Okay, we have not recorded a water cooler episode in I think over two weeks. Uh, this episode is usually where we talk about what we've been up to, what we've been doing. Um, we've already had Chris go on a rant for, for six minutes about his, uh, Apple problems, but let's, uh, let's start with what we've been doing. I've been spending a lot of time making video blogs for this new YouTube channel. I, I think I mentioned this on the podcast. It's called Ordinary Adventures. We started a YouTube channel, me and Ketra, and we're going on adventures to theme parks and other movie type events. Our first video was a trip to the Avengers Endgame world premiere. So if you've never been to a world premiere of a movie, you get to experience what that is like. And we also went to Disneyland. Um, this past week, though, I went to Disneyland yet again to do a couple of events, and we had the worst possible thing happen to us. The We spent a day filming, and all of the audio was near unusable. It, it just came out so badly. It was a uh, complete user error on, on, on my part. I had um, replaced the camera. We had to replace the camera, and I moved the wind muff 
from one camera to the other and somehow that was installed wrong and the audio all came out horrible uh we still were able to turn one of the videos into like a highly edited with voiceover video which is on the channel but uh i i would love if you're listening to this to head on over to our YouTube channel. It, it will be linked in the show notes. It's called Ordinary Adventures. And give us a subscribe and uh, ch- check us out. I think today at some point or maybe tomorrow we will be putting an unboxing video. I, I did an unboxing video of like we we all get a lot of movie swag sent to us from the movie studios. And I had a buildup of boxes of movie swag. So we decided to do a mystery unboxing of all this movie swag and um, giving away some of it to people who watch. So check that out on Ordinary Adventures on YouTube.com. Our trip to Disneyland was actually to experience one of Disneyland's After Dark events. They've been doing these After Dark events, which are kind of these uh, separate ticketed events where you pay about $110. You get to enter the park after it is closed for the night. So it clo- uh, I think we got this event started at 9 and ran till 1 a.m. And this was a Marvel's Heroes Assemble themed event. So they had uh, a lot of character meet and greets out throughout Disney California Adventure, some of which are normally in the park, some of which are not. So like Iron Man was there and all the Disney characters like Chip and Dale were dressed as Loki and Thor and uh, a bunch of just opportunities that you don't usually get to get with the characters. There was a theme food around the land. There was a hunt for uh, there was churro chart uh, churro carts around uh, this park and each of the churros was themed after one of the infinity gems. So you could collect them all and you wouldn't get anything, but you'd, you'd collect them all and have a good photo op with them. Uh, there was uh, throughout the land. It was just cool atmosphere, some uh, like fo- like non-character oriented photo ops, uh, which we did a bunch of. And there was uh, just the Marvel theme music, like just from all the films running throughout the land. And it was fun. Uh, me and my friend John were, were tr- tr- trying to guess at what, what the themes are as they started. Um, it, was a, it was a fun atmosphere. The rides uh, were walk-ons for for most rides, but I feel like a lot of these people are already annual pass holders, and to pay $110 for an event like this, uh, people are mostly going for this unique food, the photo ops, and the, the character meet and greets, and a lot of those were just really long lines. It was just spent... Uh, waiting line, like I think Iron Man's line was over two hours long at some points, and uh, it, it, most of the things to do, if you wanted to meet up with even Spider-Man, who is normally in the park, but he was at a different uh, photo op booth, like a different backdrop than he normally is, I, even his line was like a half an hour long, so you only have four hours, uh, And but I don't know, I feel like Disney has to get a hold of that. If they're going to keep on doing these after night of, after park events like they did one a month ago for 90s night and i know there was like like three hour long line for darkwing duck to meet darkwing duck and max from uh, the goofy movie so like it's just insane uh disney fans are insane they're gonna pay this money uh i had a lot of fun because it was the company i was with the friends i was with it it was a lot of fun but i'm i'm not sure if this is worth it especially if you're an annual pass holder because then you're paying an extra 100 plus just for you know a four-hour event but uh so yeah did that 
And then I went to the AMA Awards, which is basically the Oscars of Magic, the Academy Awards of Magic. And this is held every year by the Magic Castle. This time it was held in the parking lot of the Magic Castle. And it was a lot of fun. It was a fun night uh, in the castle afterwards. We got to see a bunch of shows. Uh, Two of the shows in particular were the most interesting. They had some of my favorite magicians, uh, Jared Koff and... Hannibal, they they were channeling the spirits of Di Vernon and Orson Welles, and that was fantastic. So I actually got to see Orson Welles, who at some time actually did uh, perform magic, and I got to see you know him, you know basically rise from the grave and be reprised by Hannibal uh, in 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 full makeup and, and get up and uh, tell stories as Orson Welles and do some of Orson's magic tricks. It was it was actually. A lot of fun to see. So, uh, but oh, and I also got to meet Michael Amar, who is the guy who I watched as a child. As a child, I watched his VHS tapes, the Easy to Master Card Miracle series, and he was the guy that taught me magic as a child. And I got to go up to him and shake his hand and get a photo with him, which uh, was just so great for me. It was a lot of fun, uh, t- uh, and that's what I've been doing. HT, what have you been up to? Um, For the past two weeks, I've been covering the Tribeca Film Festival, and that is the film festival uh, created by Robert De Niro that takes place in New York. And um, I uh, got to do a couple – I will talk about the movies that uh, were highlights from the festival a little bit later, but I did get to do a couple of events outside of just watching movies and uh, being tired. (laughs) But uh, I got to experience a Doctor Who VR film called The Runaway uh, because Tribeca has this great um, uh, virtual reality slash tech hub, um, which I don't usually go to a lot, but they had a Doctor Who one, so I couldn't resist. Um, Outside of the Doctor Who little area, they had a TARDIS, which was very cool. I'd made a couple of strangers take pictures of me in front of it. And um, I uh, got to to see the film, which was actually an animated film, um, which was really interesting, but it had uh, Jodie Whittaker uh, voicing the role with another actress who uh, did the physical sort of movements for it. And uh, it basically takes you on an adventure with a doctor in which you have um, somehow like bumped your head and you wake up in the TARDIS, which is her uh, time-space machine. And uh, they are the, the spaceship is under attack and she is trying to spirit this uh, creature back to its home planet. But um, they're being chased by several, uh, I don't know, like soldiers or something. But it's it's a lot of fun. And uh, it's only, I think, 13 minutes long. But it's a really great – it's just a blast to, to um, experience and watch. And you get to use the sonic screwdriver, which was very cool. I was just like a giddy fangirl the entire time. So that was great. Um, and um, – I also attended, uh, this is towards the latter half of the festival, I attended the Reality Bites 25th anniversary panel. Uh, fun fact, I actually have never seen uh, Reality Bites before, despite loving the entire cast of this movie. And um, it's it's a Gen X movie. It's like the, the pivotal Gen X film. So it's not exactly my generation, but uh, watching this movie, it is very just universal in terms of its um, depiction of that aimlessness of post-grad life and the 20-somethings of that of the Gen X generation, but everyone, every generation, really. Uh, and um, Winona Ryder, Ethan Hawke, and Ben Stiller were at the panel for this, as well as the writer for this film, Helen Childress. Um, 
And uh, it was a lot of fun to see them just kind of banter through the panel. Uh, Ethan Hawke was not as pretentious as I thought he would be. Like, I say pretentious in a loving way because I really enjoy his sort of his uh, um, philosophical ramblings, as they as you diplomatically would say. But he and Ben Siller just kind of um, bickered and kind of uh, riffed with each other the entire time. Uh, where And Winona Ryder was uh, just having a great time being uh, gushed about by the rest of the cast and the, uh, the producers and crew. So it was a lot of fun. And um, it was just so great to see uh, all three of them on stage. I love Winona and Ethan especially. So it was exciting to see that and finally see reality bites and um i'll talk a little bit more about the uh the rest of the highlights of the tribeca film festival later but that is what i've been doing for the past two weeks while you've been at a film festival ben has been traveling internationally ben what have you been up to yeah i went to london for this movie called tolkien that's coming out uh, this friday it's a biopic of the author behind uh, the hobbit and the lord of the rings and the you know it's weird to go on a set visit uh just you know a, a few days basically before a movie comes out but it, it was more um, I don't know. It, it was a strange set visit because it's not like we watched any filming. It was basically just like a, a junket overseas. So they held it in London. I got to interview the cast, which included like uh, Nicholas Holt and Lily Collins, and just go to a bunch of the different locations where they film the movie and also where the actual real Tolkien actually like lived and worked. So I'm putting together a video of this uh, and it'll be up on the site, I think this week. So uh, I'm not going to talk too much about it, but it was cool. We got to go to this bar called the Eagle and Child, which is where um, it was in Oxford, which is like an hour train ride outside of London. But it's this really small town where there's a I mean, uh, Tolkien taught and, and went to Oxford University and, and taught at a, a college there. And he hung out in this bar with uh, other writers of the era like c.s lewis uh he was in this this uh, literary group called the inklings um so it was just cool being in like you know this this like really super old bar where these you know titans of the literary industry used to just hang out and drink and like recite their work to each other you know while it was in progress and all that um we actually got uh, a tour of the area that was delivered to us by or given to us by um a student of tolkien's so that was pretty cool to have like you know that one-on-one uh, -on -one connection with somebody who actually, you know, studied under him. Um, so yeah, keep your eyes out uh, on slashfilm.com for more from that. Uh, so then I also saw my favorite band, The Midnight, in concert this past Friday night. So that was an amazing experience. Um, I don't think I've ever seen my favorite band live before at any point in my life. I've always, you know, I've seen many, many concerts, especially in my younger days, but um, it was never like the, the passion never fully lined up. It was always like, oh yeah, I really like this band or whatever. But the, the timing never worked where the band that I was obsessed with at that moment never was in my town, but in LA, I mean, every band comes through here on tours and stuff like that. So yeah, I had the opportunity to see the midnight, which was incredible there. Uh, for those of you who don't know them, they're uh, a synth wave band. So it's sort of like this retro, like uh, think about the the score for the movie Drive. That's the kind of vibe that they have. Um, and it was unbelievable. And like the saxophone player in the band. Oh, yeah, there's a saxophone player got down into the crowd. And like, you know, my wife and I were like second row or something. And the sax player was like right there next to us, just like shredding on the sax in the crowd. It was it was unbelievable. So uh, check them out. The Midnight. That's my favorite band. They're incredible. Has anybody else heard of The Midnight, by the way? 
Anybody know them? I have not heard of them at all, but I'm going to add them to my Apple Music now and just oh, give man. them a listen. They are awesome. Okay, and then uh, so this week, so that was Friday night, and then Saturday I went to uh, the Peterson Automotive Museum in LA for a new the opening of a new exhibition called Hollywood Dream Machines, which is a it's, they have like almost fifty or I guess just over fifty vehicles on display from all sorts of different sci-fi and fantasy TV shows and movies. They actually have a video game vehicle or a couple of video game vehicles there too, uh, which is really weird to see. They have like a speeder thing from the game Destiny and also a warthog from the Halo franchise, which is like the, I don't know, it's like essentially like a an off-road Jeep kind of thing with a Wait, gun. Why did they create like real vehicle? Like, is this for commercials or something? <laughs> I, I have no idea why they were there, uh, but they were like full scale, like huge. The, the warthog thing was massive because the characters in Halo, I think are uh, master chief. Anyway, I think it's supposed to be like larger than a normal human, or at least like the suit that this he's in. So the vehicle therefore is larger because they're like driving around in the thing. Anyway, it's huge. I, I took a ton of video of that. Uh, and I, I'll put together something for that on the site and that should also be up this week. So, uh, there were incredible vehicles there and, and, you know, I wasn't really expecting too much just like, Oh cool. Yeah. A bunch of vehicles in a room, but the layout is really, really impressive. And they have a bunch of stuff, like tons of stuff from Blade Runner. Um, they actually had Peter and, and Brad, I know you'll, you guys in particular will appreciate this. They had one of the original speeders from a new hope from star Wars there. Um, so that was pretty crazy to see. Um, and, uh, and it's like some vehicles from Mad Max Fury Road, which was pretty awesome. So yeah, tons of like surprising stuff that I, I wasn't really expecting to be there. Um, one of the things they also had was the time machine from Back to the Future. And Bob Gale was there, who's the co-writer and producer of that Back to the Future trilogy. And I got to meet him. Um, my wife, Amy, and I just sort of like pulled him aside uh, after he did this little uh, panel discussion. And we just got to talk to him for a couple minutes and thank him for the Back to the Future trilogy. And we actually showed him a picture of uh, Amy has this shirt of Doc Brown making this really hilarious face when uh, the model that <laughs> that he creates in the first movie catches on fire. Um, so she has this shirt with his face on it. We got to show Bob Gale that shirt and he laughed and and told us about the filming of that moment. So it was just a really cool like uh, fan moment that we had of, of getting to meet the creator of, you know, one of our favorite properties. And that Hollywood Dream Machines exhibit at Peterson Automotive is now open. So I think you can see that. I think it's open 10 to 6 every uh, day so yeah and and it's going to be open from now until march 15th 2020 so um it's actually right across the street from the academy's museum that they're it's still under, under construction right now but i think the academy museum is supposed to be open later this year so that would be a really cool if you're like visiting los angeles for example later in this year after the academy museum opens that would be a really really cool like one two punch right across the street from each other to visit those two things yeah very cool Jacob, I know you've been trying to read a bunch of stuff. What, what have you been reading this week? Uh, although I've essentially abandoned my book a week plan just due to life things, I did pick up a new book that's really ideal for my current situation, which is kind of I can pick up and put down and skim through at my leisure, and that is uh, The Presidents by Brian Lamb, Susan Swain, and C-SPAN. Yes, C-SPAN is a credited author on this book. And what it is is every decade or so, C-SPAN does this massive uh, survey of all the top historians in the United States to rank all the presidents. And this book, which where all the profits go to charity, is 
literally a ranking of the presidents where all the historians are given a list of elements to which they can award each president points. Let me pull up that page and tell you what they're judging the presidents on. Public persuasion, crisis leadership, economic management, moral authority, international relations, administrative skills, relations with Congress, vision and setting an agenda, pursued equal justice for all, and performance within the context of the times. So I think it's 100 points per category they can reward, uh, up to 1,000 points. And uh, who wants to guess who ranked number one? George Washington. He's number two. Number one was Abraham Lincoln with 907 points. And it's a really interesting book because each section has the overall rank, a brief summary of their presidency, and then an, and not quite an essay, but a uh, edited interview with the historian who specializes in that president, uh, where they've removed all the questions and transformed the interview into sort of a um, into sort of a, a spoken essay about that president. So, for example, George Washington's uh, chapter is an interview with Ron Chernow, who wrote the definitive George Washington biography. So it's, it's always like, you know, 20 to 30 page essays for each president to go over the entire history of what they did in office, uh, spoken by an expert, edited by, you know, C-SPAN uh, authors and editors and, and people who know this stuff. And it's so far, I've only read a few of the sections. I read Lincoln and I read uh, the, the very last, the, the, the dead last president, who's not Trump because they, because he hasn't, can't be fully scored yet. But who wants to guess who the dead last president is? Hmm. Uh, Donald Trump. I know you said he's not in there, but we Nick, all know that's the actual answer. Nixon? George uh, no. Bush. Uh, it's uh, James Buchanan, who was president right before the Civil War and did not prevent it, and has therefore been ranked dead last <laughs> for most of these surveys. <laughs> but yeah, it, if you, it's a really, really cool book because it's literally the history of all the presidents in one hardcover book. Uh, each essay is pretty bite-sized. You know, you, you, if you don't want to read an entire, you know, autobiography or biography of Warren G. Harding, you know, here's 20 pages, like you know what you need to know. Uh, and it's 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 just a really really cool thing. You can pick up and put down and choose which president you want to read about and see how they all stack up against each other. And it's if you like history and you like you know being able to browse about uh, a, a really easy to read book, it is incredibly fun, and I'm enjoying it a lot. Jacob, that seems so much like your thing, like the combination of history and ranking and like, you know, like like uh, comparing and, Apple, you know, all of that stuff. It just seems like it was made specifically for you. Yeah, I, I stumbled across it. I picked it up immediately. And I haven't interestingly at the same bookstore trip. I also picked up a book. Oh, goodness. I, can't have, I don't have it near me. I don't know what the title is, but literally it's a series of essays where each essay is about a president who is not elected as in a vice president who took over office when a president died or was assassinated. And it discusses uh, in depth how what happens to a presidency when the people did not pick that person and how that leader reacts. And I'm very excited to dig into that eventually too. Mm -hmm. That sounds interesting. Ben, what have you been reading? Uh, I've been reading a new book or a forthcoming book called Game of Thrones, The Storyboards, which were drawn by a guy named William Simpson. And the book was sort of co-written by uh, Michael Kyogi. Uh, most of the pages here have basically like at least 12 panels. So there's a lot of storyboards. The The entire book is just it collects storyboards from the entire first uh, all first 
seven seasons of the show. And that's the only ding that I have against it is that it doesn't include anything from season eight. And this is like the definitive book of storyboards. And it's just missing just six episodes of stuff at the very end. So I wish they could have found a way to maybe release this a little bit later and include season eight stuff in there. So it doesn't feel like it's missing uh, an integral part of the story because you just don't get the ending. And this book comes out later this month. So I think I'm looking at HBO's website right now and it has the book on there and it says that pre-orders ship on May 28th, 2019. That's after the show is over. So I feel like they could have included season eight stuff, but maybe for the press aspect of it, they wouldn't want that information out there because typically books like that will send like they did in this case, we'll send out copies to the press so we can have a chance to check it out and, and sort of tell people about it, evangelize about it beforehand if we like it. Um, and this book is very good. It, it's, a, it's um, yeah, like I said, most of the pages have like at least 12 panels. So you're getting a lot of content in there. And even though there's no dialogue, there's a description on each page of the scene that you're looking at so you don't really get lost. And it goes episode by episode throughout the entire series. Um, there's a bunch of information in here that I'd never heard before, like how some scenes were originally planned to go in certain episodes but were sort of ultimately shifted into the next episode or characters doing something slightly differently in the original sketches than they ended up doing in the actual show. Um, and, and the book often just devotes a little snippet from each scene, but it devotes several pages to the entire Battle of Blackwater, which I know Jacob would love going through, obviously. And there's another thing for you, Jacob. Game of Thrones, military procedure and strategy and uh, artwork. Um, and all of these things are just like incredibly detailed and really, really showcase how essential it is for everybody to be on the same page for super complex uh, filming sequences like this so uh it's called game of thrones the storyboard and uh or the storyboards and it comes out later this month so check that out it sounds great it's like curiosity uh ben have you read the book um where it's a fake history of westeros written as an actual like historical document uh is no i have not no. okay okay i'll figure out the title of it is it a world me. of ice and fire a world of ice and fire yeah it's literally uh, overseen by George R. R. Martin and a bunch of other like other writers, and it's literally just the entire history, front to back, of the of every every location, house, castle, area of the show, but written as if you were actually reading a like ancient tome and like a citadel library, as opposed to like you know a making of. And That's I, very cool. I think you'd I enjoy that it. Book. <laughs> it's, it's really cool. Awesome. Okay, let's move on to what we've been watching this past week. I. Spent my uh, spent a lot of time in the movie theater. I saw Endgame three times. I saw Detective Pikachu once, but I've already talked about both of those things on the podcast elsewhere. So uh, let's talk about what I've been watching at home. I for for the longest time I've wanted to subscribe to MasterClass, that website that you know they hire big people to give classes in you know the topics that they that they you know the industries that in which they work so i i've want you know martin scorsese teaches um directing uh aaron sorkin t teaches screenwriting uh steve martin teaches comedy uh you know they have a, a ton and i've been on the edge of subscribing because i think it's like something like 170 dollars for a year of subscription um, but Penn and Teller, finally, uh, they did a master class. So that pushed me over the edge. I subscribed and I, I watched the whole, I in, ingested the entire Penn and Teller master class within like 24 hour period because these master classes are actually kind of short. 
at least the Penn and Teller one, I think, was like maybe three hours of videos in total split up into, you know, the sm- small bite-sized lessons. I am really impressed at how well-produced these Masterclass videos are. Like, they, they're they more well-produced than anything I've seen in this kind of category. And um, I just wish there was more like I I guess that's probably a good thing I I guess they're probably you know presenting the good stuff that you know they probably shot with these people for a week and this is the good three hours and you know it makes me want more uh I know like in and for this one in particular Penn and Teller are teaching a lot of basic magic that would be good for beginners but the in their teaching, you're learning subtleties and theory that is insightful even for you know master magicians. It's I, I would highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. It's a I I will rewatch it. And I'm gonna I'm excited to watch the other master classes. Chris, I know that you have been a subscriber to master class. I think your wife got you a subscription or something. Uh, yeah, my wife bought me the uh, Martin Scorsese class, which is great. And oh. I also just recently got the David Lynch class. And I actually have a, a review of the David Lynch class up today on SlashFilm.com. Uh, I, I like it a lot. It's really cool. Um, are the other master classes as short as the Penn and Teller? It, it depends. Some of them are – it goes from episode to episode. Like some episodes or uh, lessons, I guess you want to call it, will be like 20-some minutes long. Some will only be three and eventually adds up to like a few, uh, you know, a few hours. Um, you know, obviously for, for the cost, I'd love more, but it gives you a lot of like insight into, you know, people you're fans of. Like, you know, being able to spend uh, any amount of time – with Martin Scorsese, having him just talk about, you know, his process or David Lynch is, is worth it for me. It might not be worth it for everyone, but I, I definitely enjoy it. And you can also, it's not as expensive. Um, you can get individual classes or you can get like the, the site wide access. And I actually think the site wide access is worth it because it gives you access to everyone, like every single class they have for, uh, just not that much more than you know an individual yeah. class. It's so I, I, two classes, I think. That's what right. I went for because I there's just so many people on this service. There's right. even like Gordon Ramsay and like you know chefs and stuff. I've been very impressed by what I've seen thus far. But uh, if I had one criticism, it is that you know expect to have a few hours with one of these classes. You know, it's a one day seminar. It's not a master class. And. I'm excited to see that Robert Irvine's Restaurant Impossible is back on the air. It's taken a, a few years off. Uh, this is like one of those guilty pre- pleasure shows that I watch. It's reality television, but it's reality television at its best. It's a food, food Network show, and Robert Irvine is a chef who basically comes into uh, shithole restaurants and basically finds you know the problem with the matter, which usually has to do with a combination of it being uh, run poorly and also that there's some kind of human problem at the core of it and he he's able in the period of two days remodel the entire business and fix the business at least if you look at the uh the tv show if you if you actually do some searching online not many of them are actually fixed but um but i don't know it's it's very enjoyable that is back on there i'm enjoying that uh chris what have you been watching 
Uh, I watched a documentary called Screwball. Uh, I think this came out a little while ago, but I, w- I just got a, a screener from it from a uh, a publicist. Um, uh, this is a, a very funny documentary. Um, it's all about the uh, the the doping scandal in um, baseball, especially involving a Rod. Um, I don't really know a lot about sports in general. So I only had a, a, a general idea about this scandal. Um, you know, it, it came on the heels of, you know, all these baseball players were getting busted, taking steroids and rather than give up steroids, they, they found this guy in Florida uh, who claimed to be a doctor, but he really wasn't, who was able to give them this sort of this cocktail that was meant to disguise the fact that they were taking steroids and uh, you know, it, it would disguise things as long as they followed this specific uh, regimen, but none of them could really stick to the schedule and they all started getting busted one by one for still taking steroids. And what, what's, you know, this story is interesting in its own right, but what makes this, this documentary really fascinating and funny is it has all these reenactments in it and in the reenactments, all the people involved with the scandal are played by children. So it's like kids, you know, dressed up like adults with like fake tattoos and fake <laughs> beards. And, you know, um, it, it, it's sort of like drunk history. If you ever seen drunk history where the person narrating their audio comes out of the, the, the reenactors mouth. So it's these kids lip syncing to these adults, like cursing and doing all this, like, ridiculous stuff and it just makes the whole thing this like really surreal funny story and you know it's basically like it's the director's sort of not so subtle way of commenting on how all these grown men were acting like children basically to get whatever they wanted and it just just makes for a very uh fascinating and very funny experience i I, my wife and i watched over the weekend we were we were laughing our asses off basically through the whole thing and where can people find screwball um, I don't think it's out yet. It, it was in theaters a few months ago. It's got to be coming to uh, Blu-ray or VOD very soon. Uh, it doesn't have an official date yet, but if you didn't catch it in theaters, it'll be out soon. I, and I highly recommend you check it out because it's a lot of fun. Jacob, what kind of bad horror movies have you been watching this week? <laughs> um, not a lot of bad horror movies. Uh, one okay horror movie called Monster Party, which is streaming on Shudder right now. It has an amazing premise, which is... A group of low-rent thieves uh, work as caterers at this high-class party in a mansion uh, with the goal of robbing it. But what they don't realize is that the party they're catering is a reunion group uh, of all recovered serial killers who have all gone through therapy and have all uh, sworn off killing. And as you can imagine, things go wrong as the owners of the house, who are all serial killers, learn that there are thieves in their midst, and everybody starts um, falling off the wagon. And it's a great premise, and I wish it sucked landing, and it really doesn't. It's extremely low budget. It has some recognizable actors like Julian McMahon and Lance Reddick, but the supporting cast really doesn't really doesn't carry their own share of the weight. It's really mean-spirited, and in ways I don't think it earns. It tries to be a really fun Edgar Wright-esque, you know, inversion of hard tropes while also being, like, vicious and cruel in ways that never gel. Uh, I wish it worked. Uh, it's streaming right now if you want to check it out. It's not a it's not a difficult watch, but it's definitely something that I wish uh, held up a bit more than it does. 
But uh, for good things, I watched all of Big Little Lies. And Ben, you've watched this, right? Yes, the show yeah. rules. Anyone else here? Oh, man, uh, Big Little Lies. I put it off for ages, even though my wife and Ben have been telling me to watch it. And it's so good. Uh, it's very soapy. At least it should be soapy, but in a way that works. It's uh, Nicole Kidman, Reese Witherspoon, uh, uh, Laura Dern, and other actresses all play citizens of a very... Uh, upper class 1% uh, California town and due to various social interactions gone awry we learn in the opening episode somebody has been murdered and the seven episodes of the first season explore how that came to be and it's not quite a thriller it's more of a uh, dissection of these characters and the interactions and the small town community where gossip and you know, prestige go hand in hand. And I really enjoy where it went. I really enjoyed the performances and I'm hesitant about season two because I feel like it ends in a pretty definitive way. But you know, when season two is being directed by Andrea Arnold and brings Meryl Streep into the cast, uh, it's hard to argue against coming back for more. Uh, ben, can you convince, it took me, my wife and you to convince me to watch this. What can you say to our listeners to convince them to give Big Little Lies a chance? Yeah, this is one where, you know, I, I was kind of, I guess just because of the way that I grew up watching things, I was I was a little hesitant to come into it when I heard that it had this sort of soapy angle that it does, but it just works so well. Like the the drama is, you know, it may like dip into melodrama at certain points, but the performances are all off the charts. Everybody is doing such great work. The direction is so like crisp and it seems like this show really has a vision and it, and it it seems like nothing is there's no extraneous stuff at all. Everything is is like pared down. This is the vision. This, you know, everything is exactly where it's supposed to be in this grand um, like murder mystery that that takes place over the whole thing. And it's just so well executed on, on pretty much every level. Um, and it's a beautiful show too. Like the cinematography is gorgeous. The editing is so great. I mean, it's just, it's, it's like one of the premier like uh, prestige TV shows of the past few years, I think. So if you're interested in, in high quality television, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Yeah, I feel like myself and other people wrote it off because it, it was nominated for a bunch of awards. I, my problem was thinking, oh, it's just soapy awards bait starring a bunch of movie stars trying to get you know emmys and it's not it what it ends up being about i found really moving and effective and necessary and and i was not expecting that i was expecting you know a lot of some good well-executed trash and i got a show that feels really relevant and powerful and right for a lot of things we're talking about in 2019 and mm -hmm. beyond yeah uh, in the opposite end of direction i watched escape room the new film by director adam robotel uh, who's been hit and miss, uh, but I've generally enjoyed his other horror movies. And Escape Room came out earlier this year. It was a sleeper hit the box office. It's getting a sequel. And it's a blast. It's a lot of fun. As the title indicates, it's about a group of strangers who get invited to a high-class, super-secret escape room experience and learn that each room is actually designed uh, not to... Not to give them a fun time, but to kill them. So they're, they're literally solving puzzles for their life in a series of rooms that get increasingly elaborate and increasingly dangerous. And it's not like a gore factory like Saw. It's not like relishing uh, and watching these characters die. It's actually not particularly violent at all compared to other horror movies like this. But the performances are good. It's very clever. Sometimes very funny. And I was really on board with the characters. And, and Chris, you saw this, right? Uh, yeah, I saw it. I reviewed it. Um, I really liked it, except for like the last 15 minutes where it, it feels like they ran out of clever ideas and just 
<laughs> like we're like, all right, we need to end this. And they just do a bunch of like really goofy crap that I don't really like, but everything else, it was so much like, I was like, Oh, this is going to be like a saw ripoff. And it is in a way, but it's so much better than it has like any right to be. The performances are really good. The set design is amazing. So while I'm not a fan of like the last 15 minutes, I, I, I do recommend this movie and I am curious to see what the sequel does. Yeah, I'm, I'm a Saw apologist, but I'd argue this is better than all the Saw films individually stacked together. Uh, moving on, I rewatched The Matrix last night it was on a whim. My wife queued it up and put it on, and I thought we'd be watching it the first hour and go to bed, but we stayed up late <laughs> rewatching The Matrix. And this is the 20th anniversary of The Matrix this year, and that movie holds up, and it's gotten so much more interesting with age, and it's aged so well. I mean, even when there's a, a, a wonky visual effect here and there, the storytelling is so assured, and what we know about the Wachowskis now as filmmakers really is reflected even more in this film as being maybe one of the great LGBTQ movies of all time disguised into like a massive science fiction blockbuster. So if you've been itching to revisit The Matrix and wondering if it's still good, The Matrix is good. And I also have a soft spot for the sequels, but they're not you know, as assured or as powerful or as beautifully thought through as the first movie. And man, I, I've forgotten how much I love this film and how much it belongs on the list of, goodness, the best science fiction movies ever made, the best action movies ever made, Keanu Reeves rules in it. I don't know why Carrie Ann Moss didn't become a huge star after it. And Lawrence Fishburne just chewing into that dialogue. I mean, I love The Matrix so damn much, guys. I think it's streaming on Netflix right now if you don't happen to own a, a uh, physical copy. Uh, but the 4K disc is quite good looking, so I recommend picking that up. Uh, and finally, with the Deadwood movie coming out at the end of the month, uh, I started a rewatch of the show. I haven't watched it in a few years with my wife who hasn't seen it and a couple of friends who've never seen it. And the first thing that struck me is that the Deadwood pilot uh, looks really low rent. And I was really worried at first if my if my mind had been clouded and the show didn't look as good as I remembered. But starting with episode two, Deadwood becomes such an incredibly great looking show. It has all the HBO quality. They built literally an entire western town full of working buildings so they can put the camera in so many interesting places. And David Milch's dialogue has been written about and talked about time and time again. But I I love how the characters speak in Deadwood. I love how you have to genuinely pay attention to the order of their sentences and how they communicate. You can't be on your phone when you watch Deadwood. You have to genuinely be invested in every single scene, every single dialogue, which is easy enough because the performances are so good. I love the dynamics of the characters and... Uh, Ian McShane is Alice Waringen is one of the great TV characters of all time. And I reached a point in season one where, for those of you who don't know, he plays like a local criminal thug pimp character. But he's also forced to essentially become leader of the town of Deadwood in, his, uh, in 1870s in the Dakota Territory. And at first because, you know, he wants to protect his profits. And second, because he actually ends up being a really good community leader, even though he never really realizes that. And I just love the I just love this show because it's not just a, a western about shootouts; it's a western about how a bunch of random people have to create a community because that's how you survive and that's how you prosper, either for your own good or for the good of others. Deadwood is an incredible show, and if you haven't had a chance to watch it before the new movie comes out on May thirty first on HBO, it's all streaming on the HBO app of your choice. Go watch Deadwood; it is amazing. Moving on, Brad, what have you been watching? I watched some things. Um, I watched the Beyonce concert documentary, uh, Homecoming, a film by Beyonce. Shortly after it came out, um, my girlfriend is a big fan and wanted to watch it while she was here uh, visiting um, around the time it came out. 
Uh, and it was, it was a pretty cool uh, glimpse at, you know, not only how she prepares to do a big show like Coachella, but uh, the performance itself was very cool. They, they did this really cool thing um, in the earlier part of the documentary because she performed twice at Coachella and uh, her and the entire marching band and dance crew that she had on stage with her wore two different outfits each night. And they did this awesome thing where at times they cut very, they, they cut from one shot to another, but their, their dance moves are so consistent and what they're doing is exactly the same that it looks like they're not cutting from a, like a different night to another night of the performance, but it looks as if they somehow set it up so that their outfits instantly changed colors between <laughs> shots. And so for the first 15 minutes, I was like, how the fuck did they do that? And I thought it was some kind of like lighting trick or something where like they switched the lights and like maybe the clothing was some kind of material, like a like black light kind of material where they're able to change it like that. But then I went and looked it up and I'm like, oh, okay, it's two different nights. Now I don't feel like like I'm going crazy. <laughs> uh, but it, they, they, it's a very fluid uh edit for those those shots and it just it's it, it looks very cool um and yeah she's she's a hell of a performer and it's uh it's a it's a very uh a fascinating documentary that's uh worth watching if you if you enjoy beyonce yeah um i also watched um legally blonde for the first time ever i had never seen it just kind of always escaped me never really cared about it uh, and it's on it's on Netflix. And once I had mentioned that to my girlfriend, she was like, she's like, well, you should watch it. She's, she's like, it's not like it's the best movie, but it's one of those kind of it's kind of a quintessential, I guess, uh, you know, romantic comedy in that way. Um, and it's it's a little bit weird going back and seeing this version of Reese Witherspoon, knowing like what the kind of role she's taking now. Um, and it's not that it's necessarily a bad movie. It's just so different. Um and the, it's you know it's it's solid for what it is. I feel like it was it's maybe it's just by today's standards because I've seen other movies like it since then, but it's fairly formulaic and predictable. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was fine. It was fine. I don't, does anybody here have any like reverence whatsoever for Legally Blonde? I know HT does. She's probably oh. steaming right now. First of all, <laughs> Legally Blonde is the feminist movie that. Uh, well, it's a very secretly feminist movie because at first you think that this is just a typical uh, cliched rom-com as you uh, kind of get the impression that, that it is, Brad. But it's actually a film that is about a girl who chases after a man and realizes that her self-worth is actually inside of um, – she only needs to find it within herself and it's not – something that she needs to look for in relationships or anything else. And it's such a great depiction of a woman like finding strength in her compassion and her and her own like intelligence while having this great group of female friends. And it's a great movie and you're wrong, Brad. <laughs> I think I think part of the reason that my perspective is like that is because the times have kind of changed so much since this movie came out. Because this movie came out in like what, two thousand one, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think that maybe we've just had so many like strong female characters and stories like that where, uh, you know, a woman doesn't doesn't need a man to define her and that kind of things so that this didn't feel maybe as fresh as it did at that time. Uh, so I do, I do respect it for being a different kind of romantic comedy in that respect. Um, but but yeah, I don't know. There, I think comedy in general has kind of changed since then because the movie feels kind of slow with regards to its comedic beats and how how fast the jokes come. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that's, it's, it's really just a matter of just like maybe it feeling a little bit more dated than I was anticipating. 
I could see that. I still think the dialogue is funny and sharp, but you have you're entitled to your opinion even if it's wrong. <laughs> I will say this is a movie that um inspired my friend to become a lawyer and I think inspired a lot of people to a lot of women to become lawyers too. So, it's a really powerful film uh regardless of how dated it is still. Crazy. Fair <laughs> um, I, I I wouldn't anticipate that film inspiring anybody to become a lawyer, but yeah, crazy. Um, Brad, what else have you been watching? I also finally got around to seeing The Curse of La Llorona. Um, my my mom is the one who I usually go see uh, horror movies with around here because she she likes getting getting spooked. Um, and because I uh, I myself am half Mexican and I come from a Mexican family, um, we we definitely know about the mythology surrounding La Llorona. Um, and I didn't love this movie, but I didn't hate it. It's, it's fairly suspenseful, but it's also extremely formulaic. Um, there's nothing really uh, original about it. And the way it approaches La Llorona doesn't feel like it's worth the weight of the mythology that, that comes with the, um, you know, the, this, the spirit and like what she, you know, represents and embodies and how sort of infamous she is in, in Hispanic culture. Um, but I will say that the one thing that I did really like about uh, the curse of La Llorona was a character who I almost would have rather seen show up in a different conjuring universe movie. Uh, because I, I think that actually um, Raphael uh, Olvera, uh, who's played by uh, Raymond Cruz in the movie is great in this movie. Um, he, he plays the guy who basically tr- helps Linda Cardellini and her family deal with La Llorona. And he's this very kind of uh, stoic and like mysterious dude, but he's also you, you get the sense that he's kind of like this badass spiritual warrior in a way. Um, but he also has a little bit of like uh, a sarcastic wry sense of humor to him. Um, and I really like that character, but I just wish he was in in a better movie because overall it was it was fairly disappointing. And have you been watching anything else? Uh, and I saw what was this? I saw Life of the Party. Um, that was that's been on HBO, and it is. Probably the best movie Melissa McCarthy has made with her husband, uh, Ben Falcone. But Brad, Brad, that that is like not an achievement. <laughs> no, no, I know. Trust me, because I, I love Melissa McCarthy. She's a fantastic actress. She's an incredible uh, comedian. But whenever she makes a movie with her husband, it is usually awful. This is the best one she's ever done. And it's actually I wouldn't even say that it's bad. It's actually pretty decent, but it still feels a little bit rocky especially when it comes to some of the supporting cast um and you know some of the jokes don't land but it's i think that it's probably the best movie that they, they've done together um and it's it's actually worth watching it's definitely nowhere near as bad as something like uh tammy or, any, or anything like that um and then i uh, this past weekend i took a break from uh seeing avengers endgame again even though i will see it again and i saw long shot even though it seems like a lot of people didn't um which is unfortunate because this is actually a really good romantic comedy uh seth rogan and charlie theron are fantastic in it charlie theron honestly can do anything she wants to she's incredible seth rogan is uh probably the most charming i've ever seen him in a movie like this they have really good chemistry the script is sharp um it it approaches the current uh political and social landscape in a way that is relevant and timely um it's it's very very funny uh it has the feel of an old school romantic comedy just with some, you know, some modern flares to it. And it makes me wish that they would, they, they would still make more movies like this and, you know, the crazy rich agents and that kind of thing. There, there's, 
there's sort of timeless quality to a, a romantic comedy like this, and I wish that they would make more of them. Um, so yeah, that's if if you are looking for a break from the normal uh, blockbuster stuff, go see Longshot if you uh, while it's still in theaters because it's not bound probably not going to stick around very long with all the other blockbuster movies taking screens coming up soon. It, it, it's weird. It's a combination of that like romantic comedy that we don't get anymore, but then it's it, it still feels like they're like forcing the drug stuff and the outrageous like comedy beats at times. Uh, it is. It doesn't feel forced to me. I don't know. I didn't. Um, I, I've seen some criticism of that. It, it feels like it's uh, uneven, and that the two tones don't really mix well with each other. But I didn't feel that at all. I, I thought yeah. that it, it worked really well. And if, if anything, like I felt, that I think that made it feel more relevant. That it wasn't trying to be uh, soft about that stuff or tiptoe around, you know, around these things that are, you know, definitely a part of you know, of real life nowadays. Yeah. I really enjoyed Longshot. You can hear me and Ben talk about that in a previous version of the podcast. Uh, HT, you put Detective Pikachu as your number three movie of the year on the summer movie wager. <laughs> you have now seen the movie. Was it a good decision or a bad decision? All right. Detective Pikachu <laughs> is fine, but it will be a fine box office sensation <laughs> because – in, in cases like in some cases the quality of the film doesn't exactly translate to how well it'll do, it'll do at the box office and i think that this is a movie that caters so heavily to fans and really um takes their wishes and takes that that um the heart that comes with the the pokemon franchise and makes it a and realizes that in the full sc- big screen and um with that i think that's why it'll go to number three at the box office but yeah the movie itself was you know mostly fine i thought it was incredibly sweet and really adorable um especially the design of pikachu and just like all the actions of all the the pokemon they were like devastatingly cute um and the story itself is very just um formulaic and uh a little bit uh, it drags a little bit too, especially when it takes the focus away from the Pokemon and puts it on the protagonist who is a little bit dull. But when you see, when you have scenes of Detective Pikachu just interrogating other Pokemon and having a ball, that's when the movie really shines. And that's when it takes that sort of fan service and that, um, that love for and nostalgia for the franchise and t- brings it to another level. Well, I, I put it at number four, and I'm worried after seeing it. But. <laughs> you know, people will see this movie, Peter, just like from seeing people's very angry reaction whenever people gave – like reviewers gave a mediocre review of this. I can see this – those people shooting this movie to the top of the box office. Yeah. Well, you, you did see a movie, which is one of my most anticipated movies of the summer, John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum. Yes. How is it? Oh, it is so good. It lives up to all that anticipation and more. Uh, It is full of heart-pounding, bone-crunching action. It's visceral cinema at its finest. And um, I will say I liked it even better than uh, Chapter 2 because it takes – the focus on a much on a much more smaller, like intimate scale, almost while being this big globe trotting, uh, mythos expanding film, it has a much sort of leaner um, structure to it because a lot of the film is just a big chase and it's John Wick evading his other fellow assassins and captors, and uh, it in that it just becomes so incredibly taut and um, 
focused. And uh, uh, Keanu Reeves is amazing in this. Uh, Asia Asia Dillon, who plays the villain, is fantastic as well. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry, it's Asia Kate Dillon. Um, she's fantastic, as is Mark Dacascus, who is kind of is actually quite fun in this film as uh, the other villain. He's um, he has a lens sort of twinkle to the role, and um, I think that they kind of elevate this film from Chapter Two because Chapter Two, while I really enjoyed it and like was so, I loved how it expanded that universe. I felt like the villains were a little bit lacking, but the villains here are just so incredibly uh, charismatic and and fun. Um, and yeah, it's the action sequence is amazing. Um, I don't want. I feel like I'm overhyping this, but it's a film that was making me like sweat 30 minutes into watching it. It was something that like gave me a physical reaction. So uh, make that make of that what you will. But it's a great film, and I think that it uh, it wholly deserves its place as most anticipated of uh, many of our lists. See, I feel like Chris needs to move over and allow them to allow, allow Lionsgate to put that quote in the trailer a, a movie that made me sweat <laughs> <laughs> and for some reason you also saw the new Ugly Dolls movie yes um, much less enjoyable than both John Wick and Detective Pikachu uh, I wrote a review of this for the site um, it's not great it kind of is inexplicably a musical for a reason that I can only see. It's trying to get a top 40 billboard hit and uh, somehow merchandise this film in a way like that it's even more manufactured to like gain the attention of kids. It feels like it's a film that is made in an algorithm and um, <laughs> I just did not enjoy it. Uh, it felt very just. Like the animation was fine, but uh, it felt very cheap to me and kind of symbolic of everything that's bad about the animation industry today, which is a little harsh, but it's not a great movie. So don't see it. <laughs> um, if you do want to see some movies, I have a few highlights from the Tribeca Film Festival that um, I want to talk about. I saw about 16, 17 movies this year, but I'm only going to be talking about um, a five or six five or six yes i can count um the first one is house of hummingbird which is a south korean coming of age drama directed by bora kim it's set in the 90s and it's um this really lovely quietly affecting film about this young um eighth grade girl who is just kind of navigating her life but it has some more dark um unseemly elements to it at that kind of emerge because she lives she comes from this working class family and her family itself feels like they're uh something that is starting to fall through the cracks of society and she had deals with sort of these cycles of abuse and um neglect that come with that and uh she it's a really great a really lovely slow moving film that reminded me a lot of one of my favorite films last year shoplifters and um it is a film that i think it's the best film I saw at the festival and uh, I highly recommend if it gets distribution to uh, check it out at some point. Um, another film I saw that I really enjoyed was Lucky Grandma, which is a film directed by um, 
Stacey Seely, and it stars uh, Sai Chin as this sort of elderly grandma who uh, finds herself down on her luck, and um, despite the, her fortune teller telling her that she's going to meet great fortune, um, and so one day she accidentally stumbles upon a bag of cash that gets her embroiled in a Chinatown gang war, and uh, it's kind of this blackly comic, really screwball uh, neo-noir about that's with an elderly grandma at the center. And it's really stylish, really dynamic. And uh, Sai Chen is just so electrifying to watch. This is a movie that I really enjoyed and that um, is kind of feels like a fresh twist on like that uh, Chinatown set noir that we've seen so much of yet take Chinatown as sort of like exotic backdrop. And here that Chinatown in New York feels very much like um, a part, a living part of the movie. Um, so that's a great film. And uh, I also saw a film called Blow the Man Down, which is another uh, debut film from the from uh, Bridget Savage Cole and Daniel Crudy. Uh, it's about two sisters who um, accidentally find themselves at the center of this vast conspiracy of... Um, sex, drugs, and murder in this sleepy seaside New England town. And um, they it's got this sort of cold, savage, Fargo-esque um, feel to it. The It's got a great female-led cast, which includes beloved character actress Margot Martindale. And um, the two sisters at the center of it, played by Sophie Lowe and Morgan Saylor, are fantastic as well. This is a really great film um, and kind of uh, very Coen Brothers uh, inspired, but t gives a sort of feminist twist to it as um, in addition to that. Um, and then I also enjoyed a, speaking of rom-coms, a rom-com called Plus One. It's directed by Jeff Chan and Andrew Reimer, and uh, it stars Jack Quaid and Maya Erskine as two college buddies who strike up a deal to um, try to survive the summer wedding season by being each other's plus ones and uh, wingmans at their the separate weddings. And of course, they end up falling in love. Uh, this is from the same team behind uh, the hit Hulu series Pen15. Maya Erskine is uh, the star of that as well, and she's great in this uh it has a very uh it's very influenced by when harry met sally um it's really fun and witty and has just this uh great af um affection i think for the rom-com that i feel like a lot of indie rom-coms don't they're always trying to subvert it in some way but this one i feel uh really is sincere and authentic in uh the genre that it's in and i really enjoy that it's um it's really great it won the audience award at the Tribeca film festival and um another film is a film called see you yesterday it's uh directed by spike lee protege stefan bristol it's coming to Netflix soon, I think in like two weeks. And uh, it's this uh, sort of time travel, uh, teen time travel movie with a Black Lives Matter hook, um, which kind of sounds a little bit strange, but it's about a girl who is a science prodigy um, who is able to invent time travel. And, um, but after she, her brother gets uh, killed um, in a bit of, by police, uh, even though he's unarmed, she decides to use time travel to go back and try to save him. It's very H.G. Wells' time machine uh, meets sort of more kooky, like Back to the Future-esque shenanigans. Uh, there's even a Michael J. Fox cameo, which 
might be a spoiler. I'm very sorry, but it's it's a kind of fun nod to that um, the whole um, genre, and it has a more sort of lighthearted uh, approach to things, even despite having a uh, really timely pun not intended and um, powerful sort of uh, themes to it. Really enjoyable. It's coming to Netflix soon. So if you want to check that out, please do. And lastly, uh, I also want to highlight Burning Cane, which was the winner of the um, Narrative Feature Award at Tribeca. It's from a first-time director, Philip Eumann, who is only 19 years old. But it's this hypnotic, mesmerizing uh, portrait of this sort of dying community within like this the Black South uh, that is more of a tapestry of characters rather than an actual story. Uh, it's about it follows this these two families and this one alcoholic preacher. Um, one family is uh, centers around like this abusive husband um, and his son, and another is the preacher who is alcoholic, and then a, a mother who is connected to two of them. So it's um it's a very meandering, very just um, atmospheric film that is incredibly beautifully shot and uh, feels Malikian almost in their, in its cinematography and its um, real meditative stance on just life. So this is another, this is the last film that I recommend from the Tribeca Film Festival. Uh, some of these films have distribution, some of them don't. Uh, I can't say which ones have them yet, but I know that See You Yesterday of all of these has a Netflix release set. Yeah. Add them to your letterbox. Uh, that, that's that's what I usually do. Uh, I'm excited for See You Yesterday and Blow the Man Down. Uh, plus One seems like it could be fun as well. Plus One's really good. It's a surprising, very um, charming film. On a different week, HD, we would have a whole podcast talking about the best of what you saw at Tribeca. But like this week, it's just so packed. Uh, tomorrow, tomorrow we're going to have Ben talking about a set visit, uh, so look forward to that. But right now, Ben's going to be talking about uh, Avengers Endgame. Yeah, I, I went and rewatched Avengers Endgame because yesterday I had the chance to speak with one of the uh, visual effects supervisors. So look out for uh, that interview coming to Slash Film on Monday. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to sort of rewatch the movie for because I'd only seen it once. And um, I know you guys are like, you know, putting me to shame, see it in theaters like five or six times or whatever. So I was like, I should probably just watch this twice. So at least I have a good uh, grasp on, on what I need to ask these questions about. Um, and guys, this movie just it really works. Like I'm so I'm still in awe of of this film. I, I know that obviously it's like a mega budget thing you know, a, a corporate product in like the most blatant sense, but it also works so well on an emotional level that I just, you know, um, any, any, uh, uh, um, I, I feel well, like there's it, also like a feeling that like there's so much fan service in this movie and, and like it's like oh I'm gonna rewatch this later and it's not gonna work it's gonna like not hit me on that emotional level that right. it hit me the first time and it, it it doesn't like it still it still works every single time yeah that's a good way of putting it so I just wanted to give another shout out to that movie as if anybody you know as if that film needs any other shout outs it's made whatever over two billion dollars already um, so yeah I saw that and it's still very enjoyable I also rewatched John Wick chapter 2 last night in preparation for the upcoming chapter 3 which I think I'm going to be able to see on Thursday night uh, and uh, I agree with HT I think the, the villains are you know th in the first movie you've got um, 
Alfie Allen playing this really like smug, you know, punchable villain who uh, kills John Wick's dog. And then in the second movie, it, it expands the scope a- around of, of the mythology and everything. And it goes global in a, a really cool way. Um, but the villain in the second movie is just not very interesting. The stuff where John Wick fights Common's character, uh, Cassian, is the best part of that movie. And, like, I still love the moment where they're walking and just sort of, like, um, quietly firing guns at each other in a public place on, like, that multi-level as they're, like, walking through the train station or whatever. That's so great. Um, So, yeah, the the action in that movie is is terrific. And the the visuals and everything, the colors in that movie just pop so beautifully. So I'm, I'm... I rewatched the trailer for John Wick three right after watching chapter two and just got excited all over again. So I can't wait to see that. Uh, and then I watched a simple favor on the plane and this, uh, back from London, I think I'm trying to think of who on this podcast has talked about this. I know a lot of people have, I think HT and I have talked about Chris loves this movie. I, I do as well. It's a surprisingly camp and absurd and hilarious. Yeah. Brad, have you seen a simple favor yet? Yeah, and I also loved it too. I was surprised by how much I loved it because it, right. it is yeah so deliciously twisted and dark and hilarious. I thought I remembered you talking about it too. Yeah, I uh, so it was you know the combination of all of you guys talking about this movie that I was like, all right, I'm gonna give this a shot, and I ended up really really enjoying it. I thought yes. uh, you know Blake Lively, who isn't, I mean, you guys have probably said this in your statements. So I'm, I apologize for repeating points that you've already brought up, but you know she's an actress that uh, has just never really left an impact on me. But she's so good in this role, and Anna Kendrick is so great in it, and the style of the movie is so great. Um, the the humor works really well the only thing that i didn't care for was the actual climactic event uh, that leads to the ending of the movie like the the way that everything gets resolved at the end uh, i'm not going to spoil it because i want hopefully if if anybody like me has been sleeping on this movie i want to drive as many people as possible to check it out um but i just i think that the very very end of the movie it sort of drops the ball a little bit but uh the the journey to get there is so worth it. It's so it just makes me want to see like ten movies with these characters. Um, and Henry Golding is like son of a bitch. That guy is charming. Like he is good looking and charming. He is like a full you know he's like an exciting movie star. Like an you know out of nowhere movie star. The type that I feel like we don't get that often anymore. Um, he's Cary Granting hard in this film. Yeah, he's so good. So uh, anyway, yeah, just uh, add me to the the simple favor fan club um, with a, a small, uh, <laughs> you know, concession that I didn't really love the ending. But Ben, before you move on, I actually have a fun. I wonder if uh, you would have enjoyed the ending more if they went with the original ending, which they re- recently revealed in a deleted scene was a Bollywood style musical number. <laughs> Uh, yes, I of <laughs> course would have enjoyed that more. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Uh, it's that, you, you have just scene... spoiled the whole movie for me. Like I now know <laughs> that the movie does not end in a Bollywood style musical number. <laughs> is that scene online anywhere, HD? I think it is. You, oh, you have to look it up. I'm going to look for that. Uh, and then um, finally, I, I caught an early screening of Tolkien, the movie I talked about earlier, because I went for that uh, to London for that set visit. And this movie is a surprise surprisingly good I, I watched the trailer and rolled my eyes so hard because the trailer leans on the influences of uh how tolkien sort of um you know was inspired to write the lord of the rings it's like 
you know, the word fellowship comes up and like the the imagery and the way that the trailer is cut together, it makes it seem like the whole movie is going to be him, um, you know, stumbling into words or phrases or uh, ideas that the, he would then go on to incorporate in like the whole like uh, Shakespeare in love kind of concept. Yeah, I've never seen Shakespeare in love. But yes, from from what I've heard about that movie. Yeah, I was I was sort of dreading it from that regard and the movie is really artfully done and doesn't really i mean there are a few of those moments spread throughout but it's never as blatant as um you know like in a music biopic when uh somebody just (laughs) you know you know i'm talking about there's that trope where it's just like when you're making a biopic about somebody who does something famous it just seems so um you know, even though even if it's actually based on real life, it just seems so stupid and so forced when when certain things sort of fall into place like that. Um, and this movie, it's more like a bubbling under the surface of uh, the entire the entirety of his life is leading up to and his interests and his loves and and um, the things that he's passionate about are are what sort of coalesce into his work later on in life. So I would recommend seeing Tolkien if you're a fan of Lord of the Rings and uh, and, you know, um, it, the love story between Nicholas Holt and Lily Collins character is really affecting even if you don't love Lord of the Rings. It's not like it's a movie that, you know, you have to know anything about that work to really get much out of. So I think it works, you know, completely divorced from uh, the knowledge of what he would write later on. But, um, yeah, it's good. I think I'm going to write a review that should be up on the site later this week. So, check, uh, you know, keep checking back for that. Very cool. Let's move on to what we've been eating. I'll be very brief here. I tried out uh, some of the new Diet Coke flavors. They've been coming out with new Diet Coke flavors. I tried uh, the strawberry guava, which I really love. I'm a big fan of strawberry. And I also tried the feisty cherry, which I guess was last year's flavor, but I never tried it because I was like, oh, they already have cherry Coke. Like, why would I, you know, what's different about this one? But then I learned that it actually is like this chili cherry flavor and it has kind of like the spicy kick to it and i i really enjoy that although i i know some people hate it brad have you tried this no i'm not really a diet coke fan in general i I did try some of the new flavors when they came out last year because they were sounded intriguing to me like the the mango one and the blood orange one but i just i can't get past the flavor of diet coke um regardless of if you inject other flavors into it so i haven't tried any of the new the newest ones what have you been eating this week brad uh, I did find uh, two other new soft drinks, though. Um, I uh, Speedway gas stations. Do you, you guys have Speedway gas stations out there on the West Coast? I don't think I so. I don't think so, no. Okay. Well, so so there's uh, it's a pretty big chain, at least here in the Midwest, um, uh, Speedway gas stations. And they have their own exclusive new Mountain Dew flavor um, as a fountain drink that you can get now. It's called Mountain Dew Cyclone. Uh, and it's basically like a citrus fruit punch flavor. Um, it doesn't taste like Hawaiian punch. It, it tastes almost like a like a non-alcoholic carbonated sangria, I guess you could say. Um, and it's uh, it's pretty good. It's it's got a little bit of like uh, some bite to it, um, but it still has that that fruity flavor. It, it definitely tastes unlike any other Mountain Dew flavor that I've had before. Um, but it's 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 very good. So if you if you find yourself at a Speedway gas station. It's their exclusive flavor uh, in their their with their fountain drinks, um, and then Pepsi came out with some new flavors uh, just recently that I finally found at the grocery store. Um, I'm not getting all, there's three new ones, but I'm not trying all of them. I only tried one that I was curious about because one of them is Pepsi with lime, which they released a while back, and it's just making a comeback. Uh, there's a, a one that has a, a blueberry 
flavor injected into it, which I don't really like blueberry as a flavor, so not not my thing. But I did get the Pepsi mango one, um, which is surprisingly good. I, I'm always skeptical about how fruit flavors mix with brown cola because it never really sounds all that appealing to me. Um, but the Pepsi mango is actually really good. I think I actually like it more even than like the orange vanilla Coke. Um, so yeah, th- those are uh, out in stores. Sh- should be r- roughly everywhere by now. Um, they actually, much like the Diet Coke new flavors, they come in the the thinner but taller uh, cans in like packs of eight. Um, so yeah, that's how you pick those up. Um, and then I found a couple random things while I was just at uh, various stores and ever getting groceries. Taco Bell apparently has. Uh, new, their own new tortilla chips now, uh, kind of trying to, to be Doritos, I guess. And uh, what's kind of cool is the bags themselves are made to look like their sauce packets. Um, and so they have a, a couple different flavors that are that are actually tied to their sauce packets. Um, and so they have a, a mild one, which is uh, the one the one that I got. And then they have one that is actually uh, spicier, which is their fire sauce. Um, and I think that they have a, a, just a classic one too, because I think they sell just their own plain tortilla chips in stores now, but I got the mild one. Um, the, I was interested in it because my favorite Doritos flavor is actually the taco seasoning one. And I thought that this might be like that, but with the, the kind of chips that Taco Bell uses like in their nachos. Um, and it, ha- it does have that taste at first, but then it starts tasting a little bit more like their sauce. And I'm not really a big fan of Taco Bell sauces. So this wasn't quite uh, as good as I was hoping, but it, it wasn't bad. I feel like they would be good um, if you like crush them up and put them in a taco salad or something like that. Um, and then I found I, I happened to find this uh, Milka Oreo chocolate bar. Um, if you don't know, Milka is a pretty popular chocolate brand overseas in like the UK and Europe and whatnot. And sometimes they get some of the coolest variations on on candy bars, especially when it comes to mixing things like cookies with them. And they have a new bar that it's uh, it's a bigger bar, and it's it you can break it up into pieces, and each individual piece has like a mini Oreo inside of it, like ra- uh, wrapped in chocolate, but so that the surface of the cookie is actually like sticking out of the candy bar. Um, and the combination of the Oreos with the chocolate is is really good. It's even better than the actual Oreo candy bar um, that that they uh, you can find in stores. So yeah, that was a, that was a, a good chocolate treat. Very cool. Let's move on to what we've been playing. I played a new game that I got this past week. Actually, a big crate showed up on my doorstep. Uh, I did an unboxing video, which I'll link in the the show notes. This is for a board game called Batman Gotham City Chronicles. This is a tabletop miniature board game. And basically, the guys at Monolith Games that did this game called Conan, uh, which is an incredible game. It's ranked, I think, in the top 500 of all time on Board Game Geek. But it's Conan, and I don't really care about Conan. But I do care care about Batman uh, I was excited to get this game and this game has like miniatures for almost every single Batman character you could possibly think of down to bat cow which is apparently a thing and uh, there you can even play as a t-rex that is in the bat cave and they also have like the Batmobile there's like hundreds of miniatures uh, is ridiculous there's like probably like do, uh, over a dozen different sculpts of Batman like you could you could play as the Dark Knight uh returns Frank Miller Batman you could you could play as you know the Jim Lee Batman like there's just tons of different ones and um 
I played with my friends. Uh, one person plays as the villains, controlling all the villains, and then uh, each individual person plays a hero uh, going against the villains. And it's just a lot of fun. I know this game is not available in stores. It's going to be back on Kickstarter next month sometime with a second season. I had a load of fun playing this, and I would highly recommend it uh, despite it being it having a high price tag. Uh, it's just really cool, and it, um, I'm, I'm excited to get it to the table again. Brad, what have you been playing? I finally got around to playing Spider-Man on the PlayStation 4, and it is every bit as good as I hoped. This game is so much fun. Um, it is pretty much it's exactly what I wanted because it's it's like the Spider-Man 2 Xbox game that was released so many years ago. Uh, like basically like a sandbox environment. You're Spider-Man. You can go anywhere, do do whatever you want to. I mean, you can't like go randomly kill people because you're Spider-Man, and that's not what a Spider-Man game is about. Um, but like you can follow the narrative if you want to. When like whenever you feel like finally going and progressing the actual story of the game, or you can just swing around and and fight crime. There's tons of things around the city to collect and, and do. Uh, the way it progresses, like your combat introduces new moves and abilities and, and gadgets for your suit, as well as new suits uh, themselves, too. The game, It's just, I, I love it so much. I've, I've pl- I think I've put in maybe like five or six hours in it so far. I'm, I'm like around uh, 20-some percent complete, I think, for, for the, um, the campaign. But it's just... I love this game so much. I'm definitely going to be playing it for a while. I'll probably go back and play it like on a harder difficulty. Um, but it's just it, it really does just make you feel like, you know, you are Spider-Man in this world. And like the combat stuff is, is so intuitive and the way he he moves and dodges attacks and uh, retaliates just, uh, yeah, it makes you feel like a, a, a pro crime fighter. And it's, it's just so much fun. Relish it, Brad. That game is glorious, and the story is so good all the way through. So just really relish it on your first playthrough. It's a special one. And Brad, you've also been playing some some mobile games. Oh no no oh sorry no not a mobile game. Uh, my my cousin recently came and hung out here. Whenever he um, stays with me for a weekend, he brings his Nintendo Switch, and he brought Super Smash Brothers Ultimate, which came out between the last time he had his Nintendo Switch here. So I was finally able to play that. I, I loved playing Smash Brothers uh, when it was on the GameCube. Uh, and I, I played it for the Wii for a little bit as well. But it has been forever since I played. And so I was really curious to see if I could pick it back up. Uh, and uh, I used to be pretty damn good at it, too. Um, I'm not quite as good anymore because getting used to the Switch controls was a little complicated. But I, at some point, I think I would like to get a Switch, but also get one of the wireless GameCube controllers that they make for it now and uh, play that way and see if I'm as good as I used to be on GameCube. But it's it's really fun. There's there's tons of new characters that you can uh, you can be now, and there the, there's new cool levels that move around and do lots of uh, things to change the environment and really mess with the uh, the fights, but it's yeah, Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. It's, it's really cool. It's, it it made me want to get a Switch, but I'll be so busy with with Spider Man for a while that I don't I don't need one probably until they come out with a new one, which I heard is I think happening later this year. Very cool. That brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at slashfilm.com. You can find links to uh, that Doctor Who VR film piece that HD did in the show notes alongside uh, a link to my Ordinary Adventures YouTube page. Check that out. Uh, you can find this podcast, Slash Film Daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free 
to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashlam.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. We'll see you tomorrow. Hey. Hey, Peter. Jacob, you're still here? Yeah. I, I have a copy of the gargantuan book of insults, offense, and affrontery in front of me. And I have found the, the finest chapter of them all, the one that I think puts all others to shame. What chapter would that be? Tactless boars. <laughs> so, so that describes uh, us? Yeah, I think that these are perhaps the funniest insults I've yet to find in this book. And that's, that's saying something, because there have been some, some real knee slappers here. Well, Brad, you're a rarely well-mannered person. Very rarely. <laughs> <laughs> That's not even... Oh, I don't know. Well, HT, we've all heard soup gargled and siphoned, but you yodel it. <laughs> Chris, the way he drank his soup in a nightclub, ten couples got up and danced. I... Chris just hung up in response. <laughs> <laughs> Well, ben, this is Chris's impression. <laughs> ben, 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 yeah, Ben, yeah. You you eat with your fingers and talk with your fork. I legitimately don't understand, but please move on and end this forever. Well, Peter, that guy, he's as refined as a cabbage. Wait, is is cabbage not refined? Jacob, you said this was going to be a good, a good section of the book. This is terrible. <laughs> it was clearly the best section. Clearly, no jokes have ever been funnier than the ones just told. In the history of man, or woman. <laughs>